0: Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. In the studio with me today is Mitchell Joachim, the co-founder of Terraform One, a tremendous friend of Design Intelligence and one of the most intelligent fellows I know on the planet Earth.
1: Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment
0: Welcome to This Is Design Intelligence. I'm so happy that you joined us here in our studio today.
1: Thanks. It's I am excited to have a conversation with you.
0: Well, thanks, thanks for taking this time together. It is always great when we get to connect. I love connecting with you, with Terraform One. It's been meaningful watching this fantastic evolution of the organization over these years. And uh, it's just I think you had a vision, you and your team and co-founders, and that vision is is just kind of unfurling in a wonderful way. How how are you feeling about the organization over time?
1: First of all, thank you. I appreciate that, and always enjoy our conversations over the years. Uh, there's never been a dull moment. Lots of invention, and uh, yes, we we're we're, um, we're thriving I, more or less. Uh, we've had some interesting moments. Uh, some great clients and some not so great and, and then, you know, grants and commissions and the usual stuff. But, uh, we, we did weather a little bit with Kanye West and now he's, he's gone off the deep end. I think he was off the deep end. He's, he's the de- redefined deep end. And yeah,
0: yeah. It's unbelievable. Isn't it? Unbelievable. You unbelievable. never know, right? You never know,
1: but he did uh, help us, you know, he's supporting our research or did, and that was a big step. And some other groups that we're involved with have been doing that. And and so uh, by this year we should have a a fully grown uh, engineered living material structure. So we'll have that, that tree hab we've been talking about for fifteen years. It's come coming to pass. It's just fantastic.
0: Well, you you've really got a heck of a team. I I did want to ask you some things about the organization and you know the theme that has was central of design against extinction. is founded a lot of your work and that of Terraform One. Was it an intentional shift in your thinking or approach that had you publish your 2020 book with Maria on design for life? It just seems, you know, design against extinction and then design with life almost feel like the same, like different sides of a coin.
1: Yeah, it's a kind of a a, a converse statement. Um, I guess, intentionally so. You, you want to always project a positive vibe as much as possible, at least. And uh, that work with uh, Maria Alová and over 400 people that had worked with Terraform One, our nonprofit over the years, really needed a way of of being celebrated and sort of unpacked in, in a a volume that uh, captures all of the effort and imagination that went on for, you know, those 15 years now, you know, thinking about the environment. And, you know, we have certainly grown. We didn't start off thinking about design against extinction. So it was, it was more like, can we be, you know, one of these extreme sustainability groups and, and how far can we go? And then eventually we got to a statement that we think is very cogent and defines our, our first principle and our intentions which are so important in design.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you're right about the positive and the optimism of design with life. At the end of the day, that's what it's really all about. Sadly, we do have to look at what's happening with our destructive thinking, speaking, and behavior that's destroying so much, the extinction not just of species, but the, the, the extinction that we are running towards in incivility, one with another. It's extraordinary to watch what's happened
1: in how we treat one another. Hmm. I, You know, I, I agree. Uh, we've got to get diversity right between peoples and nations. And we also need to get biodiversity right between us and every other organism on the planet, you know, rethinking the Anthropocene. You know, there's recent innovations as of uh, a day or so ago, depending on how you look at it, but the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory had announced a big advancement in fusion, and this is a game changer when it comes to renewable energy and and it's been happening over the past decade or so Mm -hmm. it's been a lot of uh there was an mit startup that uh figured out a form of standing wave reactors and but now we human scientists specifically mostly americans but i imagine it's a you know a multi-culti group that just happens to be located there may have uh changed the game on how we think about climate and extinction which is if we have captured the power of a star, to use their metaphor, and we're able to reproduce energy with a 120 percent overall gain, or net positive gain, and it's it has no known waste associated with it, and we can scale it. Uh, this would be phenomenal for humanity. Then it's almost everything we've been trying to fight for for the last you know 25, 30 years. When it comes to the environment it's mm-hmm. it's we've we've won we now have a the the main the main anchor of most of our problems which is fossil fuels and energy itself could be solved with something like that and, I, and i'm not advocating a silver bullet it just seems incredibly promising from all of the reports from the bbc new york times i mean it, it just it just seems phenomenal of course like capturing the power of a star one wonders what happens if you know, a facility that's uh, producing that energy, you know, has some sort of a mistake and there's a meltdown, which I imagine is the second question everyone asks.
0: Yeah. What is it we don't know in our knowing, right? I'm so excited about this that I don't even want to believe it because I don't want to be disappointed to tell you the truth. it is. It was like, really? Am I watching a movie, or is somebody really making this announcement on television? Right, it, it's extraordinary,
1: and it, it just came off another announcement that involved Elon, Elon Musk. I used to really love him. Now it's there's a lot of question marks, but he's got that Neuralink project that's mm-hmm. now going to human trials, or will be moved up to that level. And seeing on the cover of the Wall Street Journal is is a chimpanzee, or maybe a monkey, but a you know a mammal. Uh, controlling a computer keyboard with its mind as a laudable readily available soon to be deployed technology for all of humans is right next to fusion on well it's a little more black mirror super scary but that is that's something that's here and now Mm -hmm. and and then and i'm just going to add Two more things we've got cancer that uh, on another recent article about uh you know inoperable cancer, and this girl just received uh, a new type of cancer therapy and it eradicated something we previously thought would be impossible to solve. I mean, that's there, uh, there just seems to be so much good news, and then this whole year in design has been redefined by mid journey and DALI, and in general, diffusion modeling and AI, AI driven design. Which I thought would take very expensive and complicated quantum machines is now here. And it's very convincing visually, you know, being on reviews this uh, past couple of weeks at all the different schools that are out there having their final presentations, seeing students with AI is astounding what what they're able to produce. it's It's not like when CAD first came out, it, it, it's an unbelievably potent instrument that is producing, just a, you know, a BV of exciting and convincing images about the near future of everything in design. I mean, I have my own students in less than five minutes, what, you know, they're able to produce concepts. I have a class called big think Mm -hmm. and they just like that can, can combine something like a tool belt and a, you know, a beauty kit slash, you know, ballet dress, whatever. They're just juxtapose some keywords And then there it is, 20 of them. And you choose which image works the best. (laughs) It's It's just nothing like it. I (laughs) I feel like we're out of a job. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you, 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 you'll know the book, Steven Pinker's book on enlightenment, and, uh, and then Hans Rosling's book on factfulness. Both of these books, I, I love Rosling's uh, subtitle, which is Things Are Better Than You Think, right? And both of these are really about fact-based uh, optimism, and, and yet we're watching this now come forward, as you've just been talking about. But let me turn the direction a little different way. I think about the work that you folks do, and particularly your advisory work, which has really matured the team of both direct and affiliate experts you've been able to pull together and are hanging their hats with the organization as a, a really a who's who of transdisciplinary specializations. It's, uh, it's amazing the magnetism that the organization is, is emanating. But in particular, let's talk about the ESG advisory. It's, uh, it's tightly focused on coming alongside clients to, to drive what I'm calling a pragmatic solutions uh, towards holistic compliance with ESG standards. But what are the challenges that you and your team are encountering in this space? There is so much greenwashing and so much whitewashing of things that I, I am naturally skeptical as to where are we in strides forward on ESG compliance. And then let me say, and suddenly we have fusion, non-carbon related fusion energy. What is the next irresponsible thing Humans will do in,
1: in that wonderful space, right? I right. will to probably toss out ESG and get drunk on energy. <laughs> Use as much as you can, all of you can, you know, for free, and that might change the game. I mean, if if everything from the bulldozer to, you know, the concrete mixer to you know, every part of getting something as energy intensive as concrete to make a building. Uh, If you took out the, you know, if they're all running on some sort of fusion based system or fusion generated electricity, you can actually rethink the game entirely. And you could probably have actual green concrete, you know, many of the the groups that we work with, we do our best to, to be as realistic as possible about the materials and their embodied carbon and, and suggesting like laudable alternatives. And, and and it's it's not always easy. I mean, you know, again, we're we're advising, we're not developing a series of marching orders, or we'll we'll give them the marching orders, but they don't have to follow them. And in many cases, there is a big greenwashing element. And that is uh that's frightening, repulsive, and unacceptable. And then we have to even demand more of ourselves. To show or lead the way by example that the work that we're doing is the greenest possible variant, and you know ESG is good as a way of changing business, and I you know, but again, it it comes down in the form of principles, and at some point, you know, budget, bottom line, this plays an enormous factor, and in many cases, some of those principles just they're they're adopted, but they'll take years to unfold, and. We like to call that actually when that happens, a predatory delay, mm-hmm. which is will a you know a company will agree with sustainability principles uh, as far as some ESG directives, but then the profits that they're making are reliant on systems that are are just not great for the environment. And They don't wish to change over immediately, so they'll make statements and and declarations that they're getting greener, but they won't change for the next ten or fifteen years. Or it's a company that. Publicly says we're we're green, but uh, or supports an idea or research, then uh, but needs to stay in business because the profits they're making every day are so enormous. Just don't want to change, and they'll influence others. And that sort of predatory delay is an issue. I don't know how to push things to be uh, immediate. This kind of uh, affluenza seems to overtake you know our long term and even mid term goals. I think
0: about this fusion energy opportunity, and yet I know from the time it's discovered in a laboratory to the time that it makes it out to consumable products for the natural world is many years from now.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, Dave, the incentive from fuel companies or all of the fossil fuel companies is to delay that technology being released as long as possible. They'll upfront say, uh, you know, Exxon or BP, they'll say this is a great radical technology. We're so excited to see it coming on board. We're even donating money to uh, the laboratory for more research, but not enough money to get it to work at scale in a few years. If anything, it'll be just a little bit of money and then a lot of behind the scenes wrangling to slow it down. By the way, this is, I don't believe in any kind of conspiracy theory and i don't know how much of this is true or not but i do believe in value systems and convergence and it's very clear the value systems for fossil based companies are to generate a profit from their resources fossil fuels so it goes against the grain for them to to adopt or support a technology that puts them out of business they don't have to be in some grand consortium or group of them conspiring together behind the scenes to secretly stop something like fusion-based electricity. No, they just all share the same values, and it's a convergence of those things together that uh, we need to worry about. No, it's absolutely right, and we
0: are values-driven people. Whether we articulate those values or not, every human is driven by what is most important to them. We often define value as, as those things we hold most precious, those things we guard, those things we run to when trouble happens. And so your idea is absolutely correct. I'm not a conspiracist. I don't believe they're getting together in a at a fancy place and coming up with kill things plans. I think that people are coming up with this. They bump into each other and realize, hey, you have the same value as I have. Maybe we should go to this march together or do something or write a letter at the end of the day. But, You know, we do a lot of business advisory work across the built environment industry. And very much one of the first things we ask is, what are the risks to your current revenue streams? Well, it's the same question. What are the risks to the petrochemical revenue streams, right? Well, these are those things. And so uh, people are going to try to eliminate those risks if possible. Diversification into new energy would be kind of the last on the list of mitigation Mm. around these things.
1: Yes. And you got to sort of roll with the punch in those cases. But I I also would agree that they should diversify what kind of directions they choose, because you you don't want to, you want to hedge your bets and you want to have many different points of departure and and explore things that, uh, you know, give you the most amount of gain with the least amount of risk. None of that is new. It's a bromide at this point, but that's the smart play. And I I certainly do that myself. I don't, you know, we're, we're building um, a project, like I mentioned before, this engineered living material home, and we are carefully weighing all kinds of risks. And you, you, especially when it comes to questionable technologies in the environment, it just doesn't make sense to use a material. We're looking at locust board that, you know it could have an effect on the environment when we use it that we're not quite sure of yet. And the science isn't there and is still some terms have yet to be discovered. So you know we'll we'll risk a part of the project that way, but not the whole thing. But then again, like our definition of being conservative, we're so far to the left as it is that we're we're just conservative on you know what will work today that we know we could use. And, uh, you know, have some areas that are experimental. Another
0: expertise that the organization has is in master planning, and yours particularly around what is entitled environmental master planning. It's essential to large site projects. We get that. But not everyone views this through the same lens. For instance, at Design Intelligence, we get the opportunity to witness large-scale planning all over the world. But most of it, quite frankly, is with the tip of the hat to environmental variables. not front and center as the nexus for how decision-making is made in these contexts. In other words, here's the clipboard. Of, did I acknowledge that or acknowledge that? We're looking at master planning, but are we looking at master planning through the ends and through the lens of environmentalism? Is this because there's an absence of expertise to understand that in the traditional master planning discipline? Is it a weakness of conviction? Is a, is it an inability to press clients accordingly? Uh, what's up with this?
1: Well, I know I don't use the term master planning anymore uh, for reasons of you know just the affect and the posture that it sort of announces that anyone can do something like that. But strategizing or strategic planning with the environment is probably a, a better term that we should be using if we haven't changed it already, which is it's providing the kind of the grand arc or the, the central narrative, how one approaches a campus or or you know a section of a city, and then looks at a series of tactics after that strategy has been established that specify best practice approaches for each area and we'll divide them up into things like waste food water energy air quality mobility equity etc and we we do those things naturally but the the main driver if there is a some kind of a hierarchy in the not master planning would be the concerns of the environment actually we've been working as a multi species designing group So we think of animal aided design or multi-species perspectives, things that don't have a voice as being the prominent sort of figuration in anything that we approach as a strategy for a campus or for a section of a city. If you think about uh, handicap accessibility design, which was something that more or less started in the 70s, but really came to fore in the 80s people didn't take it quite seriously. And now it's just so important. We realize how important it is to our everyday life uh, as we get older and become less mobile or when women are pregnant or just young kids. There's so many reasons for thinking about accessibility and design. Animal-aided design is the same way, but its main driver is to increase biodiversity, is to rebuild our relationship and regenerate our relationship with all other kinds of flora and fauna that has been forgotten. And what does that even mean? So not only is it a, a kind of a, a top-level strategy, but it's uh, you know, we've got to get into the minutiae, how we can tactically approach that in each and every project. And where are the you know the moments of low-hanging fruit, to use that term, and, and where are things that are more difficult and and long term to achieve but in the end that uh, perspective on the environment and one that is multi species based has to happen i mean most of the natural world i think less than 13% is wild animals the rest of the natural world is is no longer it's all domesticated animals cows pigs sheep dogs and cats like there's we're wiping out a new species every 9 minutes So that's the extinction problem so i think that we we need to ground ourselves in in a logic that does care for the earth's metabolism at the same time developers are not necessarily going to completely unhinge a project if it means that they have to save some salamander and they can't build anything on a 50 acre site that is a kind of a difficult calculus to have but there's a way of thinking through these problems using the power of design and designing a place that's great for that salamander and great for people to develop a section of it. It's not impossible to do those two things and perhaps be more profitable in the end game. You have been deeply
0: committed to education for quite some time and to the students that you have the honor and privilege of spending time with. What are you seeing as the greatest opportunities for students coming out of the, the schools of design going forward? And what are you seeing as their biggest challenges?
1: Yeah well number that's that's a one loaded issue pedagogy and and design i i agree as we've had conversations before that students should find schools that are best fit to their principles and to the kind of culture they want to be involved in and it's very personal being in a design school and i think they should find places that they connect with deeply and and that requires a lot of research and understanding what's out there and and those those facts need to be available so that we can get the right students fit to the right schools. And uh, so that being said, you know, when years of educating and then 13 years in school myself, I think in general design really lets you understand the human imagination and focus it into you know, very useful ways of describing change and that in and of itself, those representations of what's in your head and what the world could be like, that kind of theory of imminence is incredibly important. And Everyone has something to contribute. I think getting through school and understanding how to be a better designer and how to communicate what seems to be fuzzy inside your head and using the right tools and the right systems and, and exploring the right theoreticians and, and understanding the right arguments and then getting facts and physics correct with structures and mechanical systems, all those things help one become a much, much better designer. And probably at the, the most important part of all of that is, you know, your mission in life. You know, what is it you want to do to be a better human and and what can you do that, you uh, is, is, is going to actually achieve that. And not everyone knows that up front, but school is a great place to discover that, to polemicize and to feedback with your peers and to learn what that means. So you get out being just a better individual. It, it shouldn't be a place where you go and get a job. That's just wrong. And I, I think that design schools, for the most part, don't do that at all. They teach you to be a better thinker, a critical thinker, to ask questions and then when you get out, you can be a like a prospering, healthy, positive member of a team that works interdependently to create change together.
0: We have been friends now for almost a decade. I have been a major fan of you personally and of the Terraform and the lab and the work that you are doing. Design intelligence is behind you. What can we do and our very large community do to better support the work that your organization's doing?
1: I guess for us, senior students, we we have an educational model in place. We are now on our third New York State Council of the Arts organizational level grant, not the small ones, but the entire level of NISCA for all of us. And we have been teaching as a part of Terraform since its inception, It was called the One Lab School and any support we can get for that, especially in the way of sending some students to us or if you're interested in giving a lecture, we would really appreciate that, especially if it's pro bono for those students. But we now have first generation Americans, the young kids from high school that get to learn design uh, and architecture at our premier facility in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And they get access to the most sophisticated, most capable Technologists, entrepreneurs, and thinkers, uh, where they come to the school for free because it's supported by grants. They get to learn about the future of design. And these are people that, you know, their parents just arrived in the United States, and this is a, a first for them. And I think creating that kind of access to people. Who need it the most uh it's phenomenal they basically they're they're joining a, a variant of the ivy league at no cost to them with no other you know requirements except for to get excited and enjoy it and terraform is doing that so anyone at di or anyone in the the community that's interested in helping us do more of that that would be great
0: that's just a great way to put a period on this time, but I think I'll, I'll mark us with a comma because I think we have more to talk about in the future. But happy holidays to you and your family as we enter this this season. It's going to be nice. Hopefully, you're going to get some quiet time and uh, recovery time. I sure am looking forward to it. Mitchell Joachim, we love being with you anytime we get the chance.
1: It's great to be here, Dave. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knable. This has been a DI Media Group production.